Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this afternoon we'll be continuing our conversation with Jonathan Griffin, moving on to the subject of his racing career and the work that he does with the board to develop the Alfa Romeo Owners Club sections. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hello, Guy. So we've, we've touched on racing a couple of times. Yeah. So we had the, the Berliner into Julia Super trade. Yeah, sure. So the Julia, the Julia Super, um, I haven't had a Julia Super before, although my brother Gavin had had one. As a, he chose it as a car uh, to use when he worked as a letting agent in Henley-on-Thames. And uh, the, he, he had been driving a two-door car and the letting agent said, oh, you really need a four-door car to take uh, customers around. So, of course, his choice was a four-door uh, Julia Super. Probably not the Volvo that his boss had. <laughs> no, probably not. But anyway, so, so I, was, I, I knew about Julia Supers and I'd been in, in, in a Julia Super. And although it wasn't quite what I uh, sort of envision, envisioned, it was by no means a poor substitute. In fact, it turned out to be fantastic. Uh, the car was uh, in its original white, Bianco Spino, and it was in very good shape. The guy I bought it from was called Jonathan Smith, uh, who lives in Norwich, and was very active on the racing scene, racing Morris Miners, and then um, a left-hand drive uh, Julia TI Super Replica, which was a very authentic replica. And it is an excellent driver, and I thought he would be a good guy to prepare the Super as well. So I left it with him, and I thought, well, I need to have an engine and, and gearbox. And I looked around, and I found uh, the remains of a crashed car for sale uh, and funnily enough it was the remains of a berliner that had been raced by paul jaggard who's been very active in the club over the years and P paul unfortunately had had um, totaled his his berliner and taken the bits off it and i was lucky enough to be able to go and buy the running gear so i had an engine that had been rebuilt by bls in lincolnshire who are often more associated with with flat four boxer motors um the gearbox as well was good and it also had an Ailey bars cage which was perfect uh, it just needed the front part of the cage just needed cutting down a bit and then it fitted straight into the the julia cabin so with those things delivered to jonathan um the car began to take shape pretty quickly the cage went in the running gear went in and at the time to get racing you only needed pretty minimal um preparation you had to fireproof the bulkhead put some extra return springs on the carburetors you needed an extinguisher and a race seat and harness and you put some tape on the headlights you had some racing tires and there wasn't a great deal of extra uh, prep that you needed and i can't tell you anyone out there who has uh, raced a car or has been uh, on a track day will know that it's very exciting to drive a car at speed without the restrictions of junctions and traffic coming the other way or pedestrian crossings or whatever it might be it's it's very freeing to be able to take a car through a series of bends knowing that that's all you need to concentrate on but racing adds another dimension and of course you're sat on the grid with how no who knows how many others i think on the first race i did there were about maybe about 28 or 30 cars and that race was at snetterton i had done my ards test to get my license got all the safety kit I needed, helmet and overalls and things, and went out for practice at Snetterton, clipped all the apexes, uh, braked as late as I could for the corners, turned in smoothly. Fantastic. I thought, this is great. Then I got the timesheet, and I think I was two from the back, which I shouldn't have been disappointed at all. I wasn't disappointed. It was, it was great. But I think it just reinforces to you that um, 
there is a lot to motor racing. You don't just think, oh, I can drive well on the road. I'm going to be a fast driver on the track. There's a lot more to it than that. And I learned that uh, over subsequent races. I think, I can't even remember what happened in that first race. I finished and I, and I think I maybe made up a place or something like that. So it was, it was good fun. It, it was great. The first thing is that you meet a lot of people who are equally enthusiastic. So that is a great motivator. People give you a lot of encouragement. They're delighted that you're there. They, everyone knows how much effort it takes just to be there on the grid with a car, uh, let alone performing to your maximum. So, so no, it was, it was a, a great experience and adi- an addictive one. Something that once you've done it, um, I can, you can easily see that you'd like to do it again and again and again, which I, di- which I did. I became fully committed to, to racing. The first races I did were actually uh, racing against other classic alphas. The Alpha Championship it was at the time was a really great place to start off your racing career. There were lots of other youngish guys who were very keen and the diversity of cars was really uh, strong. So it was d- divided into uh, different classes. So you had the unmodified front wheel drive and rear wheel drive. Then you had road going modified. So essentially the same as the other classes, but with hotter engine. And then you had uh, bigger engine cars, so three liter cars. And then you'd have the modified classes as well. So, so you'd have very fast 33s, but then you could have very fast GTV6s or 75 turbos, that sort of thing. So a fantastic mix. And because it was class racing with the standard production cars, mixing it with the modified cars, you'd always get the situation where a few laps into the race, uh, this would be me trailing around near the back. I could see in my rearview mirror someone like Roberto Giordinelli in his absolute beast of a Bertone with a 500 brake horsepower turbocharged Integrale engine closing, closing me down. And, um, uh, or it would be Chris Snowden in an ex-dealer team GTV6. And of course, you very politely move out of the way if that's the appropriate thing to do and let them go by. But as time goes on, you do, everybody really wants to try their best and you become more competitive. You, you know your car and what it can do better. Perhaps you become a little braver. You learn the circuits more accurately. So you know that you can take a corner flat or that you can break a bit later. And all of those little gains add up to really great general improvement. So I, I know from the, from the first time I raced my Super at Snetterton to, to the last time, so in, the last time in the same car, I was, I was probably, I don't know, I was probably 15 seconds of that faster something like that. It's, it's really quite, quite amazing. But even when you've been racing quite a lot as a club competitor, it's interesting when someone even better joins in. And there were occasions, occasionally, um, a, a driver would make a guest appearance in the Alpha Championship. And I remember uh, Eugene O'Brien racing a couple of times in an Alpha, I think it was in an Alpha 33, and turned up at Cadwell Park. And despite not having driven the Alpha before, as far as I'm aware, he was quickest overall immediately because I suppose someone like that just lives and breathes racing and they know the circuits like the back of their hand and and they know their own limits right up to 99.9%. So it's always something to remind you that you can always get better with these things and that practice is, is a great way to improve your performance. So that's how it all started. Tell us a little bit about how your career progressed and, and why you gave it all up in the end. So after that first race in the in the Julia, I raced with 
the Alfa Romeo Championship through till 2001, I think was my last race, the championship. Uh, and after that, I actually took the car in a different direction because increasingly I'd been racing against uh, cars with fuel injection and 16 valves in class. So when I started off, there were 2000 GTV Bertonis, there were Alfetta saloons and Giulietta 116 series saloons. But when I ended up, it was just me against Alfa 75s and 156 and 155 16 valve 2 litres. And so trying to make the old car give its best against those was becoming increasingly difficult. And so I, funnily enough, I took the car to A.D. Hawkins and I said, I'm a, I want to take it historic racing. So we made some changes, changed the engine for a worked engine. A.D. worked his magic, different carburettors, high lift cams, high compression pistons and uh, a special uh, limited slip diff on the back. And this is, we tweaked the suspension as well. And off I went out to play in the Top Hat series, Julius Thurgood's Top Hat series. And that was great. Instead of racing against the 75s and the, and the Twin Sparks, I was racing against uh, genuine Auto Delta GTAs and <laughs> many many other cousins. It was a complete ch change around. And we had to run on Dunlop historic racing tyres, the cross-ply racing tyres, which are tall, narrow, and have very little grip compared to the radial racing tyres. So again, they suit the character of the car very well. It's much more about handling rather than the, the grip. So you can throw the car into a corner and just send the back out one way and turn into it and hold it on the power through the corner. And that is one of the most exhilarating feelings. It's a bit like a cross between, I don't know, motor racing and ice skating. Very enjoyable. Lots of fun. I've got some fantastic pictures of Alex Jupe in a, in a Julia saloon at the Silverstone Classic from last year, doing that corner after corner after corner. And it just, even as a spectator, you can tell how much fun he's having. Uh, well, exactly. Alex would know full well then um, that exactly that, that feeling. It's um, it's amazing that the car will slide like that through corners on those on those uh, those tires. But then that is what they they're designed to do, and it does recapture the spirit of historic racing, and is much perhaps much more true to the sort of experience that you'd have had as a driver and as a spectator looking at those cars back in the day. I had a little bit of a break due partly to work pressure and partly to adding a couple more to the family, and I returned to to racing in the. I think it was about 2012, the Alpha Club tied up with the CTCRC, the Classic Touring Car Racing Club. And we did a number of races and that was great fun. Um, prepped the car again, didn't change the, the mechanical spec, just made it, just tidied it up and renewed the safety equipment. And except that I did run on radials rather than on the, the cross-ply racing tyres. And, and again, that, that that was fantastic fun, dicing with people like Richard Merrill and funnily, funnily enough, a whole host of guys who'd raced Alphas back in the club championship days, which for me was, was quite a bit earlier. It was also nice racing on mixed grids with other cars, non-Alphas. I remember a finish at uh, Brands Hatch where I was desperate to stay ahead of a 2.8 injection Capri and I could see that a Rover three and a half was catching him and I slightly lost traction coming out of the last corner before the start finish straight at Brands and tried to hold my line as steadily as I could and over the finish line it was one two three the Capri the Rover and then me all covered by about half a second didn't quite hold them off but tremendous fun and really good driving and very memorable and I think if I remember correctly one of your racing highlights came in one of um, one of those top hat races one of those races at the Ferrari and Maserati festival in at Donington Park in 2003 it was very exciting qualifying and I ended up I think sixth on the grid uh, in a in a, a, a nice field of uh, historic alphas um, with a guy called Paul Wallace on pole and blow me when the when the light went green I uh, I got a great start and I slid down the inside of him into Redgate 
and I took the lead from sixth on the grid. And I held on to it, for, I think, for about five laps until he drafted past me down the start-finish straight. But I held on to him, and I was three, three seconds down after about, I can't remember whether it was 20 or 25 laps, but I finished second. And I got driver of the day and a photo in Classic and Sports Car magazine with, with one to watch, it said, which was hugely exciting. But the, the reason that's interesting is it's the only race I've ever led uh, in my career because I was always racing in the standard production class. And so the, the modified cars would, uh, would come past. But, uh, but it was a great feeling nonetheless to, to look down into Redgate or down through the craners and see no one in front of you, know that you're leading the race it was uh, uh, yes something i like to imagine i like to to relive now and again with julius having successfully started his hrdc alpha challenge any plans to come out of retirement again i would love to julius keeps um sending me the invites I mean, I, i'm sure he would love me to to join uh, the fun with everybody else um, at the moment the racing car is resting and, and i would need to do a little bit of work to it to get it uh, sorted but also i have another couple i have a couple of other priorities with cars to, to get them sorted before i go racing so I'm hoping so is the answer uh, but I haven't quite managed it yet and is that monster engine from the rally car still sitting on a shelf somewhere or is that gone no no I still have that that's waiting for the right car to go into it's not a road engine uh, it is far too powerful and peaky to be used you know to tootle up and down uh, to an alpha show it really needs to to go into something that that uh, deserves it so uh, perhaps some sort of GTAM type replica or, or maybe a racing car we'll, we will see Obviously, through the the racing, you'll have got more involved with the club. Um, you also got quite heavily involved with the local section. How did that come about? Back in the 80s, I'm trying to think that there wasn't a local section for the Thames Valley. Bar well, I was living in Berkshire, but there wasn't a, a there was not a section at the time. But there was a guy who was, funnily enough, who was racing in the Alfa Romeo Championship, who lived just up the road, and he thought it would be a great idea to start a local section. I think in part he thought it would give him exposure to, to people locally who might be interested in, in, in his business. So he thought it was a good idea, and, and several of us uh, agreed, and so we started what was called the Berkshire section at some point in the late 80s. Um, but the, the, the guy who'd been involved uh, with his business moved on, and uh, Yes, I met John Timms, who lives not far from Reading, and Michael Haynes, who lives just north of Reading, and a couple of other people. And we started meeting regularly uh, in Wokingham, and then later on at the Seven Stars pub at Knoll Hill, uh, just between Wargrave and Maidenhead. And so, yes, the Berkshire section became an established section with a section secretary and everybody that you needed. And we had some great events. The Seven Stars is no longer with us sadly it's now uh, housing but the, the old landlord there was a big car enthusiast he hosted a number of car clubs and uh, because of that got a lot of attention locally and we had some quite big meetings there it was nice into the 90s and it became clear that Berkshire was the Berkshire tag was a little bit self-limiting so we decided to change it to Thames Valley uh, which was a good move because the meetings are still uh, in that neck of the woods between Wargrave and Maidenhead on the A4 at the Bird in Hand, uh, when we're able uh, to meet in uh, pubs. And that has proven to be quite a good central location to, uh, drawing people in from as far away as West London. We have, we have someone who comes from Pinner quite often, Andrew Shemery, and people who come down from near Oxford. And, and further west, we've had people from Abingdon area and, and south as well. 
occasionally people pop along from from other sections as well we have people coming along from surrey sometimes so it is reasonably central uh, and has, has proven to be good. Over the years, a number of people have been the section secretary. I've done a term. Uh, John Timms has done a term. And uh, uh, Nick Souter has done a term quite recently, and he's now 75 registrar. Uh, Dave Slorak uh, did a term. And uh, most recently, Kirsty Hodson has taken over this year. And uh, we, sh we wish her well with uh, carrying on the good works of the Thames Valley section. We've talked a lot about your history and your, your involvement with the section. When did you get involved with the, the main board? Oh, that's interesting, board? yes. Yes, the, the way the Alpha Club works, obviously there is a, a managing committee, the AROC board, and the numbers of people on the board have fluctuated over the years, but have sort of reached a steady state now. But occasionally someone leaves and they need someone else to step in. I was actually uh, invited to join the board as a, as a very long-standing member, and I thought about it for a short while and I, and I was happy to, to accept and that was March 2019. So I've been involved at a higher level with the management decisions of the club for, yes, just over a year and a half. And it, it is quite an insight joining the management team because you realise there are a lot of things that have to happen behind the scenes to make a club run. And there are things that have to be done and there are things that you would like to motivate to be done. So I, I think the club's lucky in that it has a strong leadership. It has a great club manager in Nick Wright who he does a tireless job in keeping on top of all the things that need to be done day to day uh, managing the membership uh, database and all the things arising from that is quite a big task and that needs to be done uh, accurately and professionally and then fielding all the questions that come in from members is quite a substantial uh, job in itself uh, and that is done well but of course everyone else um, is on the committee is a volunteer and some some of the guys have been there for many years and their <laughs> their experience and enthusiasm shines through john griffiths is a very good chairman i think in my opinion and uh, keeps time to everybody. It, his enthusiasm shines through because he spends so much time polishing that and everything else. <laughs> That's right. Well, everyone has to have their foibles. <laughs> and uh, no, no, John, John, John's a good guy. But, you know, without running through a list of people, the people who comprise the board bring different strengths and different experience. And that helps us broadly make the right decisions for the future of the club. And that includes, obviously, running events, because that's what many members think of when they think of the club. It includes producing the magazine. And of course, you know more about that than I do as editor of Alfa Romeo Driver. But the magazine is the jewel in the crown of the club. And I think maintaining the quality of that is, is one of the most important things that the, that the club can do, because it is something that everybody receives. And it's a great way uh, to share the alpha stories and the alpha information that we would all like to see. Uh, and it provides a lasting legacy as well. And it being translated into an archive as well um, allows people to dip in and out uh, more effectively, even if they've not been a member uh, for very long. They can see what the club's been about for many years. My own involvement, Guy, was, um, you know, it was, it was interesting to be asked to get more involved with the development of, of sections for the club. And uh, uh, Grant Richardson is involved with me there. We sort of share the duties. But that's quite a challenge. Uh, any national club needs to try and organise the members around the country in such a way that they can get the best from the club. And, and that's what we, we are endeavouring to do. But it, it's, um, it's quite a task, partly because the distribution of club members 
members across the country is not even. So there are various places in the country where there are lots of members and others where there are hardly any at all. So it's it's difficult to compare one area with another sometimes because they just aren't the, the alpha owning members. I know one of the things that has happened over the last few months is there's at least one section that's been started or, or restarted. Tell me a little bit about what, about what happened in Derbyshire. Oh yes, yes Derbyshire had been fallow for a little while. The existing secretary had to step down for, for personal reasons or pressure of work and we were lucky that uh, a very keen chap uh, stepped forward and said that he would be interested in taking on the role of section secretary. And so uh, that was um, Paul Mitchell. And so I, I provided him with the startup information and he seemed, he still seemed keen to go ahead despite, uh, you know, once he'd understood what it actually involved. And um, he uh, has had a lot of support from John Griffiths actually in the East Midlands. Uh, and uh, advice uh, generally about uh, how how to set up a, a successful section. So, which he's managed to do. Um, he's he's secretary, and he's got a, a, an active chairman in Alex Black, and a couple of other guys, James Fernley doing events, and Adrian Richardson on publicity. So, those guys met up in the pub in Derbyshire and said, "Yes, we're going to restart the section." and Paul was a little bit unsure. He didn't know how many people were going to turn along. And I think maybe the first meeting they had a handful, but then the next meeting they had double. And I think the meeting after that, they had about 20 plus people turning up. So it is an example of how uh, someone's enthusiasm can infect other people and encourage them to take a more active part in, in the running of the section. Because after all, the central club cannot make a section successful. It does rely on members in that area to decide that that's what they'd like for themselves. We can encourage them and provide them, provide the tools and the forum for making it happen. So they have a framework, but they, someone actually needs to be prepared to put in a few hours to uh, contact local members, talk to them about what the club provides uh, and what national events are available, uh, organise a programme of local events, starting with a, a monthly pub meet and perhaps some uh, events at the weekend. And you can build it from there. Uh, and of course, interaction with neighbouring sections is, is another way of uh, building a, a larger event. And, and I think more sections uh, are hoping to do that in the future. And I think you can see some of that kind of member initiation from just from the, the, the names and the areas covered by the sections when you've got things like Goodwood and West Wiltshire and Scotland. Um, <laughs> where there's a huge you know, contrast in terms of the geographic coverage. That's right. And clearly some of the sections in, uh, have evolved because there's a, a group of enthusiasts centred around um, a certain part of the country. And so, yes, if it's West Wilkes, they'll say, let's have a West Wilkes uh, section. Quite difficult in Scotland because the number of members, although they're very keen in Scotland, they are spread out quite a lot. And the commitment to meet is a huge one because of the geography. But still, they they do very well up there and manage to arrange a, a very successful Scottish-Italian card day most years. And so things are working well across most of the sections. Clearly, there will be some sections with smaller membership where it's more difficult to organise meetings and, and they may therefore have a, a smaller programme of events. And the larger sections... I'm thinking East Midlands uh, is a, a great, great example. They organise, have a tremendous calendar of events. And of course, being quite central, it's not too far for them to travel. 
to quite a few different events, whether they're alpha club specific events or others. Uh, and that's an advantage. If you're down in, in Cornwall, it's a long drive to get out of, uh, away from your local events. So, so it, it's, it's a commitment for anyone in a far-flung far corner uh, to pick up uh, and attend that sort of event. So those are the areas that are covered. When you look at the, the membership and, and the geography of the country, are there any areas that you think we really should have a section there and we haven't? That's a good question. If you think about some of the large suburban areas or the, the large conurbations, I mean, there is an existing London section, uh, although we've just recently lost our section secretary for London. So we're on the lookout for someone else to take on the mantle of section secretary there. But it's quite difficult, I think, to run a section in a large city, partly because of the difficulty of moving around. When in London, there's so much traffic, uh, the roads are so convoluted, it's quite difficult to say that any one point in London is a really great place for everyone in London to meet because of again, because of the number of people and the size of the place. But the same could be said of, of Manchester and I guess Birmingham and some other cities in the country. We don't have a Manchester section or a Birmingham section per se. And uh, I'm not quite sure what the solution is there. We had we had thought in London maybe of rotating a meeting point around the capital. So perhaps picking four meeting points and saying, right, we are going to have a meeting in the in the northwest and the next time have it in the southeast, you know, and, and so on. So that Alpha owners in different parts of London could make a shorter trip to a section meeting but it is one of those more difficult nuts to crack I must admit. We've dived into some of the detail of, of how sections are organised but given the role you have and, and your history with the club what do you actually see as the role of sections? What are sections Obviously, for? Before social media sections existed to give groups of uh, alpha club members who are by definition alpha enthusiasts the opportunity to meet up exchange ideas um, share the joy of ownership and uh, maybe a couple of pints uh, and a, a pie of a sunday lunchtime you know sections also communicate national events to the membership uh, which is which is important everybody needs to know what's going on so in combination with the magazine ha uh, years ago you'd get your information from from your local section secretary and by meeting people locally in more modern times with email and social media clearly a lot of people perhaps feel that they don't want to go to a section meeting and that they get their interactions via facebook the club has a strong facebook presence and there are individual groups for each sec or for most of the sections so if you want to talk to members in your section, you can do it there. But I think that misses the point that face-to-face -face interaction is something slightly different. So turning up at a pub of a, I don't know, a sunny evening in June or July and strolling outside with a drink in your hand and talking with other enthusiasts about their cars, that's not something you can do so authentically uh, over social media. So I, I think that the section meeting still has a place. And, and I think people in different parts of the, of the country are quite proud of their sections. They're, they're proud of their geography and they like to be different from other people. So you know, clearly there, there are all sorts of divides in, in any country, but I'm sure people in Wales like to feel very different from people in England and people in Scotland, people in Northern Ireland. And, and likewise, if you're from the West Country, you probably like to feel very different from someone in, say, Yorkshire. So, yeah, I think there's still a, a strong place for, for sections. And, and I hope that uh, the membership will continue to support their local sections. So 
last last question and i i didn't give you this one advance so i, I appreciate you've not had any chance to prepare for this if eventually you'll move on and, and do something else with the board if you've achieved three things in terms of the development of sections what are the three things that would allow you to to move on from that role and look back and say yeah that was a that was a worthwhile time I think it would be nice to feel that the sections that we have all have a group of people running them who are happy in their roles and, and committed to getting the best from their local section. That would be something. And there is a little bit of work to do there because when people understandably move on, sometimes it's either difficult to find someone or the people there are a little bit reluctant to take on the responsibility because of time pressures. So that would be one thing. I think that if we could crack London, that would be good because looking at the way the membership is uh, distributed across the country, there are quite a few members in London and there must be a way to get them to meet up uh, and feel enthusiastic about that, even if it's by making meetings at a weekend, say, uh, or centering them around uh, other other events to, to make it more attractive. That would That would be good. And I think it would be really great if sections could interact with their neighbours more often. There's really good possibilities for joint events or perhaps for travelling in groups to, to national events. And I think, yes, if there was more appreciation of your neighbours, that would go quite a long way to improving the success of, of quite a few events. I think it absolutely would. So thank you very much for taking the time to share your thoughts on the future direction of the sections and tell us a little bit about your car ownership history and your racing career. I've enjoyed every minute of it and I'm sure everybody else has too. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Guy. Thank you. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time on the 25th of October, available to download from 1.30 from iTunes, Podbean, Podcast Addict and all the other good places you can find podcasts. Until then, stay safe. Stay <laughs> safe.